On March the 12th, 1868, the upper classes of Sydney society were all in a tizzy, dressed up in their greatest finery and tripping all over themselves in an effort to get to the northern beach of Clontarf, where a member of the British royal family was being shown around. Prince Alfred, Duke of Edinburgh, fourth child of Queen Victoria and second in line to the throne, was attending a picnic that was being hosted by Sir William Menning, publicly to raise money for the Sydney Sailors' Home, privately to raise Menning's own star. The 23-year-old prince was the very first member of the British royal family to visit Australia, 80 years after invasion and colonisation began, and this visit drove the social climbing members of colonial Sydney into an almost comical frenzy which, rather than appearing refined and dignified as they hoped, was seen by the British elite to be graceless and cloying. But things were about to get a lot worse for the little princeling, far worse than having to deal with the bunyip It occurred just after three in the afternoon, and just before the visitors could enjoy a dance that was about to be performed by Indigenous men, who had been carefully kept aside and out of sight until they were required. But the performance never happened, because it was then that a tall Irishman by the name of Henry James O'Farrell strode his way purposely through the crowd, came up behind the prince, and shot him. That ties Australia's first royal visit with our first attempted political assassination. Prince Alfred didn't die, and aside from the fact that we named a hospital after him, the Royal Prince Alfred, he is the least interesting part of this story. What is important is the political and social legacy that one bullet left behind. The attempted assassination of Prince Alfred was really just a big full stop at the end of a royal tour which had been fraught with trouble from the beginning. While Alfred himself apparently enjoyed his tour of the colonies, being lavished with decadent attention at all hours of the day and then, of a night, touring our nation's finest bordellos. He was, after all, known as the Dirty Duke. The royal visit itself was fraught with deadly bad luck. An infuriated stampede occurred on the banks of the Yarra River when the prince didn't show up for his public engagement, citing fears of overcrowding at the vicinity, seeing as how 40,000 people had shown up to a place that should have only held 10,000. And the organisers didn't learn their lesson from that, because later at Geelong, another riot occurred for the same reason. Overcrowding, the prince refusing to show, and people throwing tables about because of it. In Bendigo, there was a series of horrible events, First, when three children were killed in a fireworks accident, and later, when the town hall, ironically called the Alfred, burnt down after, once again, more ironically, patriotic designs caught on fire. What a bloody senseless waste for a hedonistic 23-year-old. The most politically charged moment came when the Protestant Hall in Melbourne decided, to honour the prince, to decorate their establishment with pictures depicting the Rattle of Boyne, a battle which saw the continued British control of Ireland and the pressing forward of the Protestant ascendancy. But by choosing this particular picture, it was obviously less about showing love and loyalty to the prince and more about offending the Irish Catholics. And it worked. A crowd of Irishmen formed out the front of the hall and attempted to tear the banner down, right about the same time that the prince was enjoying a ball that was being held just nearby. Orange men in the hall responded to this threat against their poster by shooting into the crowd and killing a young boy. 
which then in turn led to the police entering the hall and arresting several Orangemen. However, by the time the news of the shootings had spread across Melbourne, it had been twisted and distorted so that it was now claimed that the Catholics were the ones that caused the bloodshed and public opinion against them soured further. And to make matters worse, many people blamed Fenians. Broadly speaking, a Fenian is someone who supports Irish independence and who also believes that that independence can only be won through armed revolution. The name came from the Fenian Brotherhood, which had been formed 10 years earlier in the United States, with the objective of securing Irish independence from Great Britain by any and all means possible, and was a specifically international organisation that worked with its sister party, the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Just a year earlier, the Fenians had attempted a rebellion, known later as the Fenian Rising of 1867, which, while ultimately unsuccessful, had far-reaching consequences. Many of the Fenian conspirators had been arrested and moved to England, and some of them had even been transported to Australia, where they had arrived only one month before the prince. There had been attempts to free these men, including an attack on a prison van that resulted in the death of one police officer and led to the hanging of three Fenians, later known as the Manchester Martyrs. And then, on the 13th of December 1867, in an attempt to free the prisoners held in Clerkenwell Prison, a bomb was set off just outside, killing 12, injuring 120, and freeing no prisoners. It's still considered to be the most infamous attack carried out by the Fenians and led to global outrage and open hostility against anyone who is Catholic or Irish. And all this happened just three months before Prince Alfred came to Sydney. Basically, in 1868, the Fenians were the religiously inspired terrorists of the day, zealots who stood against all that was good and true, and that meant that, by extension, anyone who was Catholic or Irish was treated with suspicion and spite, which set the groundwork for what was to follow. Because, to have a witch hunt, you first need people to believe in witches. Once it was discovered that O'Farrell was an Irishman, many witnesses came forward after the fact to claim that O'Farrell had shouted something before he shot the prince, though what he says varies from I am a Fenian, may God save Ireland, to I'm a bloody Fenian and I'll die for my country, and I've done my duty and I can die for my country. But considering the extremely short time frame between O'Farrell's shout and the shot, it is strange that he was able to say so many words so quickly and that they could all be heard and interpreted so differently. What makes it even more doubtful that this happened is that Sir William Menning, who was right next to the prince, later admitted that he had no recollection of O'Farrell saying anything at all. But that didn't matter. Tensions were already at boiling point, as was clear by the riots in Melbourne, and once that bullet passed through the prince by the hand of an Irishman, Fear and paranoia exploded across the nation. Many saw this as a crisis. But one Henry Parks saw this as an opportunity. On the surface, Henry Parks' story is one of a poor man made good. Born in Coventry in 1815, he received almost no formal education and was a child labourer. By 1839, he had immigrated to Australia. Park cycled through a series of government jobs before becoming involved in politics directly. 
He was an opponent of transportation, but as a matter of pride rather than some humanitarian leanings, was fiercely supportive of a federated nation and was determined to shape the colony into the image he thought best suited it. Though Parks is seen by many as someone who championed equality through his campaigns for universal suffrage and education, Parks only wanted equality for those that he considered his equals. He had no interest in including Indigenous voices in his plans for a new nation, and he wrote up the earliest blueprints for what was later the White Australia policy, while at the same time calling for easier migration from the United Kingdom. He openly despised the Irish, once declaring that he was, quote, pursued with a sleepless and relentless hostility by the organ of the Irish and the Roman Catholic body of New South Wales. There were a few things that had led to this, but in the 1860s, the main point of contention was the fact that Parks wished for universal education that would be secular and provided by the government, something which directly conflicted with the Catholic Church's wish to educate their own children in their own way. Overall, Parks had a commanding presence, was a great orator, and was our first political showman. In 1868, Parks was enjoying his very first term in office as the member of Kayama in the New South Wales Legislative Assembly, when, as Colonial Secretary, he was assigned to investigate the case. Parks managed to make O'Farrell's acquaintance hours after the shooting, and as the prince was laid up in Governor House, a bruised and battered O'Farrell was languishing in Darlinghurst Jail. After his arrest, he had been stripped and relieved of all personal belongings, including several small sheets of paper that turned out to be a diary of sorts. I say of sorts because those few loose leaves contained not so much a factual recording of O'Farrell's actions, but rather the incoherent ramblings of an unstable mind. It is now generally accepted that Henry O'Farrell, though sincere in his actions and anger against the British, was not the mastermind that many had initially believed. Born in Dublin in 1833, he arrived in Melbourne with his family in 1840, where his father established himself as a butcher. His elder brother, Peter, became a solicitor in Melbourne, and while Henry himself studied the law briefly, he decided instead to enter into the priesthood. And while he was said to have excelled at his studies, he subsequently dropped them after a tour of Europe and a brief visit to his native Ireland. Once he returned to Victoria, he went bush, where he was said he was going to try his hand at sheep farming, but was then next recorded on the goldfields just outside of Ballarat. It was on those hard living grounds that O'Farrell's reputation began to crumble, and he was known for his heavy drinking habits and his delirious fits that sometimes saw him restrained in a straitjacket. And added to this was his somewhat odd behaviour when sober. Because even though he had long left the vocation of priesthood behind, he had developed what some called a religious mania and still practiced celibacy, a strange thing around Ballarat at the time. But what's more, he would pay young women to lay next to him all night in a bizarre act of martyrdom as he resisted the temptations of the flesh. It should be noted that decades later, Mahatma Gandhi also practiced this same ritual, though his own mental competence was never brought into question. In 1867, one year before the shooting, O'Farrell had been committed to hospital, suffering from delirium, though he checked himself out one month after that, claiming that all the doctors were poisoners. He suffered from delusions and paranoia, all exacerbated by his heavy drinking. And with all the reports of Fenianism in the papers, it's believed that this contributed to his excited mental state, one that saw O'Farrell make his way to Clontarf that day. 
O'Farrell might have wished he was part of a larger conspiracy, but to say that he acted on the express orders of the Fenians is utterly false. To many who interviewed him, even Parks, it was fairly obvious that O'Farrell was not in his right mind. Yet all this evidence was not allowed to be admitted to court. If it could be proved that O'Farrell was mentally incompetent, then a lighter sentence could have been asked for, and he might have avoided the death penalty. And that was not the result that a hysterical public and a deeply embarrassed government wanted. Eight days after the prince was shot, Henry James O'Farrell swung. He was 35 years old. Despite all this, the other Henry didn't wish for the answer for this attempted assassination to simply be the acts of a lone madman. It was too easy, too neat, and it certainly didn't serve to unite a nation in shared grief and outrage. After his interview with O'Farrell, which, while not exactly illegal, was highly improper, Parks was apparently convinced that O'Farrell was part of the Fenian network, a secret, deeply ingrained group of conspirators that was still running wild across the country. This was something that O'Farrell himself had claimed, saying that a group of them had drawn lots to determine who would shoot the prince. Yet, considering his mental state and the fact that absolutely none of his tales could be verified, even though he gave locations and dates, it was easy for many to come to the conclusion that O'Farrell was delusional or just straight up lying. Not so much for Parks. He decided that O'Farrell's word was good enough to start a statewide, months-long investigation. It was then that Parks created his bloodhounds. Think of it as 1868 border force, but if you can believe it, with less integrity. A specially hand-picked group of seven men who were, in Parks' mind, highly specialised detectives, though later they were admitted to be little more than amateur sleuths, were all tasked with the job of discovering and dismantling the Fenian network that had supposedly taken root in New South Wales. And they were prepared to do so with the help of the newly instated Treason Felony Act. The Treason Felony Act of 1868, which pushed through just six days after the shooting of the Prince, it was done at Parks' insistence that there was a very real danger that needed to be contained, but in reality it simply served as a way of filtering out those undesirable elements of society that Parks wanted gone before his vision of a federated Australia could be realised. Those elements included anyone who didn't blindly, wholeheartedly and absolutely swear allegiance to the Crown and the Empire. It included this incredible section, and I quote, If any person shall use any language disrespectful to her most gracious majesty, or shall fastidiously avow to determine to refuse to join in any loyal toast or demonstration in honour of her majesty, shall be deemed guilty of a misdemeanour, and may thereupon be apprehended by any constable or any other person without any warrant for such purpose and, on conviction, shall be imprisoned with or without hard labour for any period not exceeding two years." So that's two years in jail for refusing to drink a toast. With these draconian laws now in place, it was not only incredibly easy for Parks's bloodhounds to conduct their investigation with almost no oversight, but it was also now open season for everyone and anyone to accuse people of being disloyal subjects. It was witch hunting season. 
Bartholomew Tommy was the first person charged under the Act when, after imbibing in a few drinks in a pub in Goulburn, was heard to declare that it served the Prince right as he had no business being in this country. Lucky for Twommy, the act had only been announced in the newspaper and not officially proclaimed, so he was set free. Later, two Irish miners out at Emu Creek were charged with grievous language against the Crown when they declared that there was no more harm in shooting a prince than it was to shoot a blackfella in this country. Which means that this whole thing just has layers of nastiness to it now. After their arrest, they were paraded in front of a crowd of 300 who had come to see genuine Fenians, and who must have been disappointed to see little more than ragged miners. But there were also more than enough cases to show that these laws gave people leave to attack anyone they didn't like, regardless of their political position. In Hay, Captain Brown took the local bank manager to court over some argument, stating, What right did he, a damned bank clerk, have to an opinion? in what was clearly an issue of class rather than straight-up nationalism. And down in Albany, John Rue was brought before the court, accused of spreading Fenian propaganda. But when questioned as to what Rue actually said, no one could tell, because Rue had been speaking German. All these cases were trivial, spiteful, opportunistic vengeance born from hysteria. But while no one was ever formally convicted under the act, people were still being arrested. And Parks used this blown up nonsense to convince Sydney-siders who had little to no contact with country folk that the interior of New South Wales was virtually crawling with Fenian rebels. But after a few months, the hysteria from the attempted assassination had died down. The prince would live, Henry O'Farrell was dead, and too late came the concerned whispers that there might have been a miscarriage of justice, and the heavy threat of a nationwide network of Fenians who were hiding in every shadow, just waiting to unleash fire and brimstone on an innocent population, began to lose its credibility as it failed to manifest. Fear had evolved into a cautious confusion, and with no further attacks, no charges, no one jailed, and with the overbearing and thuggish bloodhounds becoming more and more disliked by the general public, Henry Parks was rapidly losing credibility. The bloodhounds had turned up absolutely nothing, and those in power began to question exactly what it was they were doing and why they needed so much money to do it. Because that was the real scandal to the government, the fact that the bloodhounds couldn't account for all the expenses they'd been charging to the government purse. Expenses for things such as coaches and fine hotels and lots of good food and drink. By April, under increasing pressure to show either results or receipts, the bloodhounds resigned en masse, and more doubt was cast over Parks' continued assertion that there were indeed Fenians in the country. And to add to all of this, on the 21st of April, Something that Parks had desperately been trying to keep from publication for over a month was finally leaked. Henry O'Farrell's final confession. The night before he was hung, O'Farrell admitted to the jail chaplain that he was not, in fact, part of a Fenian conspiracy, and that he had lied about being an agent. While he had planned to murder the prince, this had been of his own making, and he had told no one of his intentions. 
This confession had been made one day after the Treason Felony Act had been passed, and while Parks had been aware of it, he also knew that such a confession would have stopped any investigation in its tracks. So, he decided to suppress it. Now, this confession had only been leaked, not confirmed. And when requested, Parks refused to release O'Farrell's dying confession to the public. He didn't deny any questions, but he didn't answer them either, keeping everyone, public and government, in a confused state. But rumours were still out there, and by August, too many people were asking too many questions, and the pressure was on Parks to prove his Fenian conspiracy real. The good old Parks had one last card to play. While back in Kayama for a public meeting, an environment where Parks could really shine and where he was still warmly welcomed, in front of a crowd of his constituents, he unleashed his most outrageous claim, and he made his greatest political mistake. He said, quote, I can produce evidence, attested by affidavit, which leads no doubt in my mind that not only was the murder of the prince planned, but that some person who was in on the secret and whose fidelity was suspected was foully murdered before the attack finally was made upon the prince. Like fanning the dying embers back to life, hysteria once again sprung up. Suddenly, there were letters pouring into Sydney newspapers, sure that they had heard some rumour in late 1867 of a group of dangerous Catholics who intended to march to the Domain, all carrying revolvers, intent on shooting anyone that got in their way. A claim, like so many others, were utterly false. But while stupid stories like this still circulated, this time around, many more people were ready to question the whole thing, rather than just blindly believing everything the showman, as Parks was now known as, said. The second wave of Fenian-inspired fear didn't go as far as the first one, and soon the supposedly murdered Fenian conspirator had been jokingly labelled as the Kaima Ghost, a fanciful story made up by a desperate politician. Parks was quickly becoming less of a commanding figure in the fight against terrorism and more of a foolish old liar. This was further cemented when the Secretary for the Colonies in London sent a letter to New South Wales, utterly rejecting the Treason Felony Act and refusing to even pass it on to the Queen to sign it into law, calling it extreme in its scope and the severity of its penalties. So now Parks looked like a fool to Whitehall too. No one was ever convicted under the Treason Felony Act. The bloodhounds disappeared with as little public fanfare as they'd entered, and all in all, the entire long hysterical campaign really resulted in... nothing. Nothing except a lingering, deep-seated fear of the other, etched into the Australian law and policy. By the end of September 1868, a disgraced Parks was out of office. But that wasn't the end of Henry Parks, not by a long shot. Three and a half years later, he returned, and despite his reputation as a liar and a fearmonger, he flourished. He was to be Premier on five occasions, was knighted, had a town named after him, and is now more commonly known as the Father of Federation. People much prefer to remember his remarkable rise to power, rather than the cruel and underhanded ways he achieved that power, because... I guess that makes for a better story. The Great Fenian Conspiracy of 1868, which saw so much terror and hatred exposed across the state, is now a barely remembered blip, as is the shot prince. 
The 150th anniversary of the attack went past with barely a flutter, not even a small on this day segment, which I find rather peculiar. It has been purposely forgotten for the sake of Parks' legacy, yet that need to create an atmosphere of fear to control and rule is so clearly etched into the political DNA of our government that, 150 years later, echoes of it are still being felt today. Last year, I decided to go visit Volklu's house. It's a very pretty house, but historically leaves much to be wanted. There's a dismissive hand-waving of the indigenous peoples, and when it came to depicting the first white man to build a house on that location, an Irish convict by the name of Henry Hayes, instead of a portrait, they had a crude caricature. The cliched knuckles dragging on the ground, hairy lower jaw thrust out with a pipe stuck between his teeth, and a stumpy hat pulled low over a thick brow. My last name is distinctly Irish, and even though more than a century and six generations separate me from the Emerald Isle, just looking at that picture gave me the strangest sensation, as if I'd just dodged a bullet. And anyone else out there with an Irish sounding name should be acutely aware that only for the grace of time are we no longer the nation's main political scapegoat. Not now that they have so many more to choose from. These days, the political focus is on those African youths, or Muslims in general, or those islander gangs, or the Vietnamese crime lords who are going to take over this country, but only if the Chinese don't get there first. And of course, the one that never gets old, the always scary Aboriginals. The Irish don't have to deal with that anymore, but only because of the passage of time and the fact that political racism is a moving target. But every time I see fear-mongering reports of restaurants closing down, of delicate white mothers on morning shows objecting to refugees, or of angry, absurd threats being made online by teenagers who are then arrested and paraded about by our government, intent to scare us, while at the same time reassuring us that they'll protect us, I just think of Parks' legacy, of how history is so easily and purposefully repeated, and how the Kayama ghost is still haunting all of us to this day. <laughs>